Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. I'm George Bradley, an architect and a director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. And in each episode, I talk to a different architect from around the world to discuss an inspiring house that they have designed. In this episode, I am joined by the architect Christine Lara Hoff, director of the Berlin-based practice Hoff Architects. We discuss No Man's Land, a 19th century traditional farmhouse located in former East Germany that has been given a new lease of life. Designed in collaboration with Sierra Boaz Cobb, the project is described by Christine as an architectural palimpsest. That is, something that is reused or altered but still bearing visible traces of its earlier form. Yes, I googled it. The project is a beautiful example of a sensitive reinterpretation of an old building, but I also really wanted to discuss it on the podcast to find out more about its approach to achieving net zero energy consumption. In the interview, I talked to Christine about the state-of-the-art sustainable interventions she made on this building, how they have seamlessly been integrated into the home, and how she worked to retain the original features of the farmhouse. If you'd like to find out more about Hoff Architects and the project No Man's Land, you can find information on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Uh, hello, Christine. Thank you for joining me today for uh, another architecture podcast. Thank you for having me, George. It's lovely to be here. Um, so am I right in assuming that the name of the project that we're going to be talking about today is, is called uh, No Man's Land? Um, and am I right in assuming that that refers to the project location? Um, yes, absolutely. I think that um, the probably sort of the wonderful thing about this project is really that it is in no man's land. Um, mm-hmm. That's probably also what attracted the clients to the house. Um, maybe just to rewind really quickly and give an overall what no man's land means for us. Um, the project lies in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, which is sort of a state that is one of the newer states of Germany, um, mm-hmm. which means that it post the wall falling down and the reunification, um, this state was added to Germany as part of the Old East. And um, there's lots of uh, still there's lots of differences between the old east and the and the west of germany even after so many years of reunification where infrastructure is really lacking in some of those parts mm-hmm. and that's sort of no man's land it's a place where you know you rarely have internet um where your cell phone reception doesn't work and that's sort of the charm of the place but also mm-hmm. led to a lot of the challenges for us and is it geographically as well? Is it is it quite remote then as well in the sense in that sort of no man's land sense? Absolutely. So um, infrastructure. What I mean with infrastructure is even just starting with the roads. There's a mud road that leads to our um, site, and um, it also it's in a little village. That's there's nine houses that exist there, um, and before you turn right onto the mud road, there's sort of a concrete block road, which was very popular in the old east, um, but really surrounded by agriculture, um, and you you pretty much the only thing that you see is more there's more cows than people. <laughs> and what's so the existing building? It's um, you've done work on a farmhouse. It's a nineteenth century farmhouse it's a renovation um what's the story behind the the purchase of of this building and the clients sort of finding this in the first place and wanting to make a home out of it um that's exactly what we kind of asked ourselves when we saw the site because we thought Mm -hmm. oh my gosh (laughs) 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 um this looks like a catastrophe waiting to happen but um it's it was a building that um was for sale happened to be for sale um the clients actually went out to this village um to visit a friend um to go apple picking and on their way back from the apple orchard they saw this for sale sign and 
And they said they pretty much loved the little Schuppen, which is sort of a storage house that's next mm -hmm. door to the main building, because that was actually exposed with brick. Um, and you could kind of see or um, almost interpret what was under the concrete stucco or plaster of the main house, um, and that there was something more to kind of be exposed or be um, had from the house. Um, so they they fell in love with this little um, sort of storage house, and then they, they fell in love with the area, and they said that, you know, they just wanted to get, buy it. They, it's definitely a house that they use for, um, a weekend residence. Mm -hmm. They live in Berlin and they wanted to kind of be out in the middle of nowhere, have no internet, the right to be offline. Um, and they really wanted to yeah, get out of the city on the weekends and long, um, sort of longer weekends or vacations. And cause this region, it's just North of Berlin, isn't it? Geographically, it's kind of towards the Baltic States. Um, that, that sort of region. Exactly. It's actually, we call it the Mecklenburgische Schweiz. So Mecklenburg, the state and sort of it's a, the landscape is so beautiful that they call it the Switzerland of Germany. Um, right. They have really beautiful lakes in the region. Um, the There's tons of forest in the region. Um, and it's sort of, it's known for its beauty. Um, and a lot of, it's become a little bit more expensive because a lot of Berliners kind of move out there. But this is so far out. It takes about two and a half hours um, north of Berlin that most yeah. people don't come out there. Um that's sort of the charm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it had been sealed up. So it wasn't, the building wasn't in use. Was it, why, why had it been sealed up? Was it? Um, maybe sealed up. Perhaps I, I went to extremes on that description. It's actually, so, um, when we, f when we first saw the house, the front door had been sealed up and the, um, Actually, the facade uh, used to be a brick facade. Now was sealed up with um, concrete plaster, um, and some of the windows had been sealed up. You could see that they kind of were um, that any material that they could find in the old GDR and the old uh, German Democratic Republic they used to kind of close up the house. It was in use. Um, mm -hmm. It's sort of the when we came to the site, we thought, wow, why, why would you close the front door? And I think just, um, that began sort of a research on the house and sort of a research on its history, which, um, most prevalent, you could see the GDR history on it. And, um, I think one of the most Im sort of important things for us, um, was that we thought about, um, we looked at the history and we realized that, you know, in the GDR, I mean, not only a house, but, um, the entire old East Germany was sealed up. They built a wall around it. It was mm -hmm. a time where really people looked inward and, um, didn't want because neighbors would spy on you, didn't want sort of this transparency that post, um, sort of reunification became very, very popular in Germany, mm -hmm. um, with a lot of glass use of glass. Um, so I think it, it really comes, it came out of that history, um, where before as a farmhouse, it was in the 19th century, it was built out of brick, some beautiful brickwork. And then post-World War II, um, just to quickly <laughs> go into the history of it, post-World War II, it was actually a um, place where a lot of refugees or sort of displaced people um, lived because there was too too little uh, housing mm -hmm. stock. And um, about three times the amount of people lived there that live there now. It's a five-person fam family that we um, renovated the house for. And it actually, there were about up to 15 people that would live in the house. Mm -hmm. um, and then during the GDR, it was obviously, you know, completely closed off. Um, and really the, the front door was kind of replaced by a small little window. So any little things that they had, they were very reusable. Uh, resourceful with their materials, but really mm -hmm. it was a closing up and a, and a looking inwards. Um, and then today, um, the, these nine houses are kind of 
left to their own. There's no real infrastructure in the village. And I think the state had tried to decide to kind of let certain villages die off. Um, there was really nothing except for electricity. So we had no water. Um, the, and this was really sort of a community effort, um, started with our client, um, and their friends to really bring infrastructure back into this little town. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to sort of think of this little humble um, farmhouse that sat there, this being the latest evolution of it, but sat there through huge series of world events and and political kind of turmoil. And it's this is the sort of next chapter of its little story. I, I really like it. And I'm curious as to, am I right in saying that this was your studio's first project when you were working on this? You'd come from a sort of background of big, big buildings um, and then set up your studio. Was this your first one? Um, yes, absolutely. It was um, sort of a happenstance that a friend um, knew, had a friend who had this house and he was looking for, or the, the, the couple was looking for an architect. Um, and they actually were, their two sort of founders themselves. Um, one of them's a lawyer. He founded his own sort of very successful spinoff off of a big law firm here in, in Berlin and just founded it a few years before. So it was sort of also in this kind of starting phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and she works for sort of a grassroots um, sort of startup that works within the EU and um, Eastern countries and helping out um, on education and, and also infrastructure there. Um, so I think they both had this sort of idea or interest in um, kind of taking chances uh, also definitely um, allowing a newcomer to see what they could do. Um, so they really didn't have this, which is very common in sort of a German culture of, well, if you haven't done it a hundred times, then we're not going to uh, take you. And so they were really open to kind of seeing what someone who had designed skyscrapers before mm-hmm. um, and uh, I had also worked in Germany before, but on huge bigger buildings, mm-hmm. what that person would do with their little, um, their little shed, they called it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the skyscrapers because when you're saying a newcomer, I think it's important to sort of place the context of a newcomer in the sense of this kind of scale. However, some serious pedigree of, of your career leading up to this point. Um, and one of them just for sort of listeners is um, the tower in New York. Is it 50 West 57th? Street, one of the thinnest skyscrapers in the world. Am I right? It's one of those one of those ones that has completely transformed the New York skyline that you see in all the movies now near near Central Park. Uh, And you were the 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 lead architect on on that Um, project. Yeah, there were um, three uh, lead architects, and then or and then uh, one project manager um, and one technical person. And so we were mm-hmm. five people, um, which is not normal for the size of a project like that, um, designing mm-hmm. this at, at shop. That was my first year there, um, straight out of Yale. And I had worked before for three years um, in Germany, but it was an incredible project to work on. Um, mm-hmm. And yes, the thinnest skyscraper. Um, I think it was a sort of era in New York where they were really trying to push um, a new sort of skyline. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how we also got it through our Landmarks Commission. Um, and it was a really interesting project to work on. Um mm-hmm. Very different scale. Um, also, never uh, we worked with the developer. This is obviously one to one, the end user. Um, I think there's pros and cons to both, but I really mm-hmm. enjoyed, especially on this first project, um, that you had such a close contact um, and really saw the end user come into the project when it was finished or come onto the construction site and kind of think, oh my God, is this going to work? <laughs> um, but really uh, sort of this close contact with the client and and seeing something that's so dear to them that they're going to use at the end, um, yeah. seeing their reactions. It's absolute polar opposites. You couldn't, you know, from from the skyscraper in New York to no man's land and the little sort of farmhouse. Um, was that when you um, you moved from New York to Berlin and set up practice? Was that your intention? Is that what you were hoping for? That a commission like this would would come through of this kind of scale? 
Um, I think I was, I, I think we definitely don't want to specialize in a certain type mm -hmm. typology. I think this was, um, not the, so much the scale of the project, but rather sort of the challenge of the project was really yeah. what, um, what made me so interested in it. And, um, I, I, mentioned this before but i think the the biggest challenge and the biggest perk of the project is that it really was yes in the middle of nowhere so no infrastructure and we realized that in order to make this um building sort of work um there would be an opportunity because it was so off the grid to really make it self-sustaining so mm -hmm. we also because the client really pushed this idea um, and was very open to it as well, um, we used solar panels. Um, so we really only had electricity. Uh, the client mm -hmm. with the, the neighborhood, they brought water to the site, um, which was a huge investment. Um, and the town kind of in a grassroots action um, sort of decided to... Uh, pushed the government to bring water to the site, paid a lot of it themselves. Um, but really only with water and electricity, we had no heat infrastructure. So we used um, what we could on the site. The The site actually had good uh, geothermal ground. So um, when you were talking about a skyscraper, we actually, we talk about it as a skyscraper that was built underground. Mm -hmm. um, we went 130 meters deep into the ground for the geothermal. And the geothermal pump sort of um, is used for heating, for hot water and the floor heating. We used radiant floor heating with um, a concrete um, sort of design concrete floor, which has a great thermal mass and really, um, especially in a farmhouse where the, you felt like all your heat was sucked up by the floor because there was no insulation. This kind of created a really warm feeling in the house um, because it's, it doesn't have a basement, so it's directly mm -hmm. slab on grade. Um, and that geothermal and the, the floor and the, and the water heating is actually supplanted by the solar panels. So the solar panels gain energy in the summer. Um, mm -hmm. When I say it's, I always try to say it's like net zero because we used the one um, connection to infrastructure, which we had electricity. So we gain heat, uh, solar electricity in the summer. We bring whatever we don't use into the grid um, and sell it to the grid. And then in the winter, when we need it for the geothermal, um, the client can buy it back or really it just the, um, the meter counts how much they gave in, how much they gave mm -hmm. the grid, and then they can take that back. So really, all of the energy that they're using right now, and we've gone through about one cycle, one winter, and it did work, um, what has been created by the house itself. Yeah. So, I mean, there's that's one of the really inspiring things about this project is this self-sustaining aspect and... Um, and, and how it's been designed. And that's that you've got a sort of strong background in that as well from before setting up the practice. And I've got a lot of questions. I think there's a lot of things to learn um, on what have been applied on this house and, and how they work. I'm interested just at right at the beginning in terms of when the client came to you, did they already, what did they come to you with? Did they come to you with a clear brief um, for that aspect of the design? And did they come with a sort of clear brief of what they wanted you to do or, or was that, did that evolve through your kind of input? Um, I think they definitely came with the brief of, um, well, they knew the facts that there was barely any infrastructure, that there was only mm -hmm. electricity and that they were really only looking to invest in getting water um, to the site. But they also had an incredible interest, especially because um, the, one of the so um the husband is actually a lawyer who organizes sort of the um energy um day in Germany on the legal side so really looks at um renewable resources is incredibly interested also in looking at this project as sort of a study and as sort of like a lighthouse project so yeah. that obviously also perked our interests in seeing that this person was really um behind what he said um and so they had talked about you know let's look at different means of getting the energy and so we looked into geothermal because um after we did a ground study and realized that it was 
um, that it was the right uh, earth to to have geothermal work. Um, for solar, it was also something that they had kind of put forward. Um, they had thrown out a lot of ideas, and we kind of came to solar and geothermal after doing a couple of studies. There is sort of a, I think, more of a um, mentality of sustainability here in, in Germany, mm. which is what I really enjoyed coming back here and working here again. Um, I used to work at a firm in the south of Germany for three years between my undergrad and grad um, called Bienisch. They did sort of the Munich Olympic tents with Frei Otto and are really known for their sustainability. And I think that there's more and more of a in all the clients I've had here, either working in that bigger office or um, the smaller clients I have now is in my own office, um, all of them have an interest in a long-term investment. And mm -hmm. those arguments really hold with them versus in the U.S. I mean, I worked for developers, so I can only say, um, speak on that side, but there was less of an interest in a complete long-term investment just because the market is um, doesn't really uh, push that. Um, there's mm -hmm. also, um, for the solar and for the geothermal, we got um, tax reductions. We got um, money from the state after applying to certain grants. So there's really an initiative to do that here. Mm -hmm. I was gonna, that was going to be one of my questions, actually. But, you know, certainly from my perspective, the perception is that in, in Germany, in residential architecture, far ahead of you know anything in in the UK in terms of even just you drive through Germany that I mean it has it's been a while now because of covid and various things but you drive through Germany and you see solar panels everywhere just in a sort of in a basic level but the perception is you're you're far ahead from that sort of on that sustainability aspect and and wanted to ask why you thought well a whether that's whether you believe that's true but and um but why you think that might be what's what is the difference in the psychology that makes domestic clients either make these choices in Germany or architects mm. push them more? Um, I can't probably really speak for the UK versus Germany, but mm -hmm. I can speak for the US versus Germany just because I worked in both systems. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there is... Um, I always like to go back to kind of, I don't know, the the root of a word to kind of explain things that might mm -hmm. have to do with, I um, I studied German in, at Berkeley as well, just to um, get back into uh, German and thinking about um, maybe working here. I didn't want to speak German like a four-year-old because um, I had left Germany so early on. Um, but looking back at sort of the linguistics, so sustainability in Germany means um, Nachhaltigkeit, and it really means um, sort of a sustaining of um, something. But the word itself comes from the forestry industry um, here in Germany, and it was a way that the forest, that um, sort of forest rangers would describe their way of um, working the forest, um, mm -hmm. sort of getting wood from it, but still... Um, working with the material so that it would be so that it could reproduce itself naturally um, and sustainably. And that um, I think just uh, looking at that forestry example, there's a, in Germany, it's a very small country, 95% or even more of our forests are um, forested. Um, so I think there's sort of a, we're the size of uh, California. So there's sort of a, we already have reached the limit of our resources. And there's a mm -hmm. mentality here of resourcefulness, of that there is no um, throwing away, there is no away, there is no other. There's just, we've already reached our limits. And I think that there's sort of that mentality um of resourcefulness um, and of early on education kind of really, um, I think, makes that difference. I mean, I grew mm -hmm. up in California and there's a lot of, you know, education on uh, sustainability, but I think there's a different size to the country in the U.S., um, also a different amount of natural resources. But mm -hmm. in the building industry, interesting enough, um, 
actually the U.S. has started um, LEAD, for example, um, leadership in energy and environmental design uh, earlier than Germany started its sort of pendant to that. So 1993, LEAD was founded. And then only in 2007, when I was actually working at Beanish, and they had a big part in this, the DGNB was started, which is sort of the German Association for Sustainable Building. Mm -hmm. And they, um, this was a program sort of somewhat like LEAD, but the reason why Germans didn't have to have that for so long, I think, was uh, when I was working at Beanish, a client called and said, I want a LEAD building. Um, And this was a German client, and I said, even if we gave you a lead building, that would be an illegal building in Germany because it wouldn't even <laughs> it wouldn't even um, sort of quell the requirements of the normal sort of building law and building code. So the building code is so strict in Germany at date two thousand seven that it was higher had set higher standards than lead. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there's more and more sort of a a desire and maybe also a need to kind of put sort of stamps and um, extra kind of check pluses on on super sustainable buildings. So there, so that's coming, which I think is is successful in the U.S. And I think it, it needs to um, the Germans need to learn from from the Americans in that way. But um, they had a head start that was that was um, sort mm-hmm. of far beyond <laughs> the lead standard. Um, Uh, from the get-go. Yeah. So if we talk maybe about some of these aspects on, on the design then of No Man's Land and, and some of the specifics, because a few, a few of them it just taken individually can be sort of, they're very attainable things to do. They're very, um, you know, if we take, if we just start with one of them, so that you mentioned about the solar panels um, that are on the roof, these are solar shingles, so they're just tiles that slot in, in between the rest of the tiled roof. Um, why doesn't everybody do that why isn't that just sort of standard um well also to pick up on one thing that you had said before you know that um in germany solar panels are all over the place it is sort of become a certain standard but a standard that's i i personally think as an architect very hideous because it's sort of an (laughs) applique um yeah especially on renovations um Mm -hmm. we had to redo the roof so we took that opportunity to think about how solar panels are done on roofs and how um, really hideous it usually is and also what an obstruction it is to the context Um, Mm -hmm. just quickly to um, sort of set this in in its context we actually had um, in Germany we we don't Certain um, areas of a city usually have a Bebauungsplan, which is a plan that says this is how much you're allowed to build, this is how much Mm -hmm. you're allowed to extend. Um, It gives restrictions sometimes on building material. And here in this region, or lots of regions that are kind of forgotten about or not important enough, they don't have these types of rigid plans, but there's a rule or a code that says you have to build within the context. So... Mm -hmm. In by putting some solar panels on the roof, huge things that are sort of applied on top, it would not have fit into the context and would not have um, gone through the building department. Mm-hmm. So we took that challenge and thought, okay, how can we, solar has been around for so long. Um, we knew that Tesla was doing solar panels that were integrated into the roof. They're actually not approved in Germany because of the uplift tests that they haven't um, mm-hmm. approved, passed. Um, Germans are very, very rigid and strict <laughs> with everything. Um, but we found a company um, called Zoltec, which does solar panels that are were the exact size of a very common um, sort of roof shingle producer. And there's about four um, PV panels within one um, shingle. 
And it's a shingle that's very lightweight. Um, it's applied to the roof the exact same way that a, that a roof shingle is. Um, but you also have to connect them. And usually, even this company said, well, usually we apply it in a field. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a bit darker than the rest of the panels. But we thought, well, we want this to be a lighthouse project. And why can solar not be completely integrated? Um, so we looked at the sun and we thought we looked at optimal positions for these panels and then we wanted to completely integrate them. So we created a pattern with the sort of normal roof shingles and the, yep. the solar. Um, our roofer called me when he saw um, the plan and started just screaming <laughs> <laughs> into the phone. <laughs> um, and I had to call him back two days later after he calmed down. And I went out there with him and we were kind of directing him to, you know, what we wanted. We were on the roof with him. This was became a very personal project because yeah. it was something that no one had done before. And right. Being a young woman does not help on the job site um, or younger than most white men that kind of control mm -hmm. the architecture field uh, also in Germany. Um, so especially with the builders, it was very difficult to kind of say, yes, this has never been done before, but it can be done and it mm -hmm. will be done. Um, but a lot of it was us putting time on the job site, <laughs> which is probably not something I would recommend any architects to do. But, so that's interesting. It's not because these, you wouldn't know, you look at the roof, you'd have no idea that, um, that it's half sort of solar panels and there's this complex system going on. But you mentioned that this, it's not been done before. And that's, that's interesting to hear. I, I was wondering whether this is a sort of standard thing that has been used on other houses in Germany, but you've basically pushed the boundaries of a product that's there. It's readily available, but trying it in a different way. Do you think through having done it as a test on this project, are you sort of convinced of the, because these things just need to be tested. There needs to be pioneers that, use them so that then the mass market takes them on with less kind of concern and risk. Were you kind of convinced by, by doing it here that this could apply again and again and be refined or were you put off? <laughs> no, it's an interesting question. I think, um, absolutely. I realized that, um, especially in a conversation with, uh, my, the, the roofer that, um, we just had recently, cause he asked me for some photos of the project and he said, yeah, well, you know, if you have any, if you're ever doing it again, um, you can put me on the job. And, mm -hmm. um, because now he's familiar with the material, because now he sees it as a unique selling point, he, yeah now want uh, sees this almost as an advertisement but this is complete 180 from you know the mm. what he saw in the beginning which was a risk for himself um and i i completely understand the building industry in some sense because you know there's a young architect that comes and says no no we can do this but it's never been done before and they in the end take the risk um mm especially legally also in Germany that falls more on the builders than on the architect. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it's definitely something that we, a technology that we push and that we wanted to continue to work on. And I see that people um, are asking me about it. Clients are asking me, can we do that on our building? I fear that it becomes sort of something that I do on every project. Um, but I think that more it's, um, I realize that each project is sort of, I, I kind of want to push the boundaries on each project and mm -hmm. each project is not made for this. Um, Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, the state has an incredible amount of sun, hours of sun, um, mm -hmm. more than most, this region, more than most, um, most regions in Germany because there's sort of a, um, mountains that kind of lie in that region that uh, catch some of the, the storms. Um, and so it has, has a lot of um, solar gain. Yeah. I definitely want to yeah keep pushing certain technologies mm -hmm. and i think that this was just sort of the beginning um yeah and i hope that for example tesla comes out with an even better um mm -hmm. solar panel these solar panels are incredible the company that we worked with was very difficult so i wouldn't repeat it again but i think that mm -hmm. also in solar companies come and go so quickly that you know i'm 
excited to see the next thing on the market. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to say, sorry, quickly to yeah. the the panels. I think one of the things that was also so important to us is that I really hate that people um, always say, oh, this is a green building. And then you're always mm -hmm. expecting, oh, it's going to be really ugly. Um, and or very like a sort of it's in your face. And mm. I think that there's a wonderful thing about being subtle with sustainability. Um, yeah. it doesn't need to scream at you. Um, and it can be incredibly beautiful. And we really wanted to create also this sort of shimmer on the roof, like old, um, slate, uh, roof tiles that all don't have the same material quality, yeah. um, sort of almost replicating that natural kind of texture um in a super high technology uh, with super high technology was was sort of a interesting metaphor or sort mm -hmm. of replication that we wanted to create and it's not a stick-on solution here it's not a kind of I don't, people use the term sort of greenwashing don't they? they've just sort of tacking things on it came out of thorough research of the actual context of the building and its location. And you mentioned the same when you were talking about the, the geothermal system that I want to ask you a little bit about. Of um, You mentioned early on, you said the ground was good geothermal ground. Um, a lot of people might not know what that means or might not be aware that certain ground is good geothermal ground and certain ground isn't. So here, can you tell me what happened here? Like what analysis was done what what makes the ground what made it a kind of yes this is the right thing to do and then just a bit of explanation of what the system is you know what you what you had to do absolutely um so i think that there's so many different i, I was also asking um the the technician that came on site, you know, what is the perfect ground for geothermal? And he said, it's actually incredibly hard to say because there's so many different layers that give off enough energy for geothermal to work. But it's the fact that you can, um, so for example, we were testing the ground um, that was about 20 meters below and we realized for horizontal geothermal, it doesn't, this system won't work or this ground won't work because um, it was a lot of clay, um, which doesn't sort of, um, it doesn't heat up enough or doesn't, it doesn't have enough um, temperature difference between the exterior mm -hmm. sort of outside and the ground itself. And that's kind of really what you want to create with geothermal is this temperature difference between outside and sort of the earth mm -hmm. that, um, that you gain the heat from or the cooling from. So it's always talking about a few degrees of temperature difference. Um, we when, had, sorry, when you talk about horizontal geothermal, this is shallow kind of digging of trenches, laying pipes over a big surface area, like across a field or. Right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, which is sometimes obviously not even possible in cities mm -hmm. um, because you can't really just build on top of that. You really have to have a f amount of land that you don't want to use. You can yeah. use it sometimes for parking lots, um, but you cannot really put a lot of weight on it. Um, if you go deep, it's only really a point. Um, I mean, this, this hole was about 40 centimeters um, in in diameter and it went 130 meters deep. So wow. it's really, yeah, really okay. incredible. God, um, you'd never know that if you stood outside this building. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And it was really incredible to see sort of the drilling happen. So um, they, um, the drill itself is kind of modular and it, um, they keep putting parts on top of it to keep going deeper. And mm -hmm. then um, they, it spits out all the mud um, and they create sort of, and it spits out a lot of water and they create this sort of, as I said, 40, um, centimeters diameter hole that then has two, um, uh, pipes that go through it. The pipes are extremely small. They're about, uh, three centimeters in diameter. And one, um, there were two in our case that went into this hole and pretty much there's a frost, um, 
a fluid that doesn't freeze that goes uh, down into this 130 meter deep hole, exchanges its temperature with the ground, um, so brings the cold temperature down there, it heats up and then brings the heat up. And then there's a pump that sort of create, um, uses that small temperature difference um, and intensifies it so that then when it comes into the house, um, that temperature difference is kind of uh, becomes even greater. And mm -hmm. then what we had is um, we had our geothermal, we had a very small footprint, about 100 um, square meters, and so about 1,200 um, square feet. And um, we put the geothermal in the little storage house that our clients fell in love with. Mm -hmm. And then we had a... Um, a pipe that was thermally insulated that went to the house um, and the main house. And then we had uh, floor heating. So um, we took out the entire bottom uh, sort of floor or really foundation um, slab. We put uh, concrete, then a um, insulation, and then sort of this um, concrete, designer concrete, um, 10 centimeter thick floor, which had pipes in it that had the floor heating in it. And the wonderful mm -hmm. thing about this is that it really, um, the, you're standing directly on the concrete and it has such a wonderful thermal mass, um, that the heat really only comes up. It doesn't go down because of the, the insulation and yeah. it's right on your feet where you need it. Heat rises, yeah. it doesn't fall. So, um, that was one of the big things. If we didn't have floor heating here and we had a normal heating system, this, um, this amount of energy probably would not have uh, sufficed to heat the house. Mm -hmm. Um, because sort of your, uh, temperature because the the felt temperature of the occupant um, is much higher because it's directly on your feet. Um, yeah. And you were you were mentioning earlier about um, sustainable architecture and sort of feeling very strongly that it shouldn't doesn't need to look like it's sustainable and it can be beautiful. Um, I think we shouldn't forget here that this is actually a very beautiful piece of architecture and it's and it's a lovely um, renovation in a home and. One of the key things is you've worked a lot with in the interior. You've you've kept a lot of the traditional, the original timbers and exposed them. Um, could you maybe tell me a little bit about the uh, the interiors and what you've achieved in there, and what was important to you in terms of the look and feel of the house? Um, absolutely, thank you. Um, I'm glad. <laughs> We were hoping that it would I did, be I didn't beautiful. want to talk, you know, we're talking a lot. I mean, it's great from the sustainable aspect. That's a real key feature, but I don't want to forget that this yeah. is beautiful architecture as well. No, that was also very important to us that it wasn't um, that so the sustainable part really worked, but that it was beautiful architecture in and of itself. Um, I think in, in order to talk about the interior, um, one of the things that was also important to us, and I state this a lot, and um, you would also written about this um the the palimpsest sort of of the house um yeah. and i think i can only describe sort of our interior the approach to our to the interior and the exterior um design th through that sort of idea so um palimpsest obviously comes from a um used to be sort of a, a scripture role where um Things were written, um, but then scraped off and written again because the paper was mm -hmm. so valuable. Um, so that sort of um, seeing different um, levels of something, of a lifespan of something, um, all on one piece of paper um, was something that, I don't know, always interested me in architecture uh, at Yale Peter Eisman used to talk about this um, as a sort of metaphor in architecture of, you know, showing the history of a building or rewriting or writing on top of the history of a building mm -hmm. um, or a landscape. And so I had described sort of the, the history of this house um, and we really wanted to show different parts of that. So for example, um, the farmhouse itself is an old Fachwerk house, which is sort of a mass timber construction, which is very popular in Germany um, during the 19th century. And um, there's beautiful, it's without nails. Um, it's all wood um, sort of, timber that um, is slotted into one another um, through tent uh, through sort of pins and it's 
really actually very beautifully done. Some people still know how to do it. And we found a carpenter who actually still was very versed in this uh, building technique. And he restored our the entire timber construction. And we really wanted to expose that. So before, obviously, in the GDR era, it was all plastered up with um, plastic um, vinyl uh, that mm-hmm. was made to look like wood. Um, and so <laughs> we took that all off. <laughs> it was like an architect's nightmare walking into this house. Um, but once we started, you know, taking... Um, sort of scraping off the first text to get back to that metaphor of palimpsest, we um, we saw all these beautiful elements. So we restored the wood. Um, there was a um, sort of clay hay um, ceiling that's between the wood, uh, wood structure, which we found a... Um, someone to restore in a beautiful way. Um, he has had a lot of experience with these clay sort of ceilings and, um, we used, and then for all the interior, because of sort of the standards in Germany, we had to insulate. Um, Mm -hmm. we wanted to insulate on the interior, which is not ideal for this climate, but because we wanted to expose the brick on the outside, we decided to insulate on the interior with a insulation that, um, doesn't rot as easily, um, and is great for, um, sort of those temperature differences, which are created when you insulate on the interior. And, um, with this new sort of shell on the interior, we decided to use jip and really make really crisp sort of 90 degree, um, corners, which mm-hmm. is in complete contrast to sort of this clay ceiling, which is all rounded. And we wanted to highlight that kind of contrast. Mm-hmm. So, um, especially on the shell, we did a lot of sort of, um, uh, shadow reveals and things like that so that you could really see the the difference between the two materials. Um, and then same on the exterior, um, it was the brick, um, was clad with this concrete, uh, plaster just so that it was sealed up so that no wind could come through, but it caused the entire, um, the entire wall to then become, uh, non-diffuse, so all the all the f- heat that was trapped in would create condensation, and the w- we actually had to dry out the walls, the brick masonry, and then um, we had our brick layer redo all um, all the holes and re- sort of restore restore the facade. And then the brick had this white patina on it from the concrete plaster. And we actually really loved that because we thought, you know, it shows sort of this trace of history of the GDR. Um, and so there were, there's certain parts of it that we really wanted to keep. Um, and for example, in the north, we kept the original windows, the original window size. And then in the south, we really, uh, started breaking open the facade and and breaking it open to the garden, which is why the client wanted even wanted to keep this house was because of the location. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's just it's such a sort of beautiful example. I think this project of a of a kind of a considered approach, a kind of curated a care of an existing building, a kind of rebirth of an existing building, but packing a lot in that you know, with the geothermal and with the, you know, the, the energy use of the building, the insulation of the building as well, it really kind of brings it up to a whole other sort of standard that we'd assume would sort of last for another hundred years for this building. Um, but it's the beautiful kind of balance between a very considered, very nice living uh, space, but a respect for the, the building that's there. I think it's really successful. Um, and so many, I mean, the things we've just, we've talked about already in interviews, there's so many things to learn from. Um, in How have the clients responded then since, since it's been completed and since they've been living in the space? Um, well, thank you again. And um, I think the clients really um, love love the building. I think the, the most exciting kind of um, experience that I had was when we went to the project and their children saw it for the first time um, mm-hmm. because children sort of have this unedited 
mm-hmm. <laughs> reaction. And were to you things. there? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it was just uh, the daughter kind of put her hand in front of her mouth and and uh, started like getting you know her eyes filled with a little bit of water mm-hmm. and she just um, you know they were they're saying it's so big and it's so filled with light and I can't believe this is our you know our farmhouse mm-hmm. um, and I think that uh, the client um, the wife she's told me that she wanted to you know always use sort of some of the old furniture and all the old furniture and now she's kind of pick and cho- chosen she said i i took the gdr chairs because i really wanted to keep your your guys's in- interest in this palimpsest and now i'm getting this modern uh couch and so she's kind of picking up on our theory and really applying it also to the interior which i think is the biggest compliment you can get from a client mm-hmm. that they've understood um, what you are trying to get at. Um, and I think that they, they love it because also because it, when you're inside, because sadly our climate is so cold here, you do spend a lot of time indoors. Um, Mm -hmm. they feel like they're inside of the, they're in the garden. Um, because with the huge windows on the South, um, and, complete sort of these picture windows, which a lot of the builders also said, you know, it doesn't fit to the region. And we're very hesitant, uh, to kind of build these, these large windows. Um, they, they, the client loves it. And, um, it really is sort of a surprise when you walk to the South of the house, to the garden side. So I think that the neighbors were worried when they saw the big windows coming in, but now that they see the entire, um, sort of, the entire composition, they realize, you know, that we are keeping the conservative sort of front um, with uh, the shutters. And then on the south, we have these modern frames um, mm-hmm. and, and sort of picture windows. And, it, you know, as a house, it's it's pioneering. You're trying things that haven't been tried um, before. Um, but I like how when you're talking about it, you're I can definitely sense that there's hunger for for more and you said you know, the next projects you want to be pushing uh, new boundaries so what 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 new boundaries are they what are you working on at the moment or what are you hoping to do next that that further sort of pushes this agenda with with architecture um so i think that there this was sort of a start to the interest of in wood um and sort of germany is now sort of picking up on the wood building construction industry um and I think that so one of the projects we're working on right now is a co-living project um, in outside of Köln, um, sort of a industrial region in Germany, and it's um, we want to do it all out of sort of CLT uh, construction, mm-hmm. so a more modern take on this wood industry that ger- that the German forests that are so prolific here. Um, are starting to get into. Um, I think that's one of the big interests, especially looking at sort of architecture and um, why I think I got into architecture, um, which is this opportunity to, you know, offset these this 50% of CO2 that the building industry creates worldwide um, to, to really have some sort of, even if it's small, an impact on that. Um, and then we're working on a kindergarten here in the, um, in Berlin. And that is also a project that we're doing where, um, the roof is going to be a complete green roof, um, sort of an extension of a garden because they have this beautiful garden, but they don't have a lot of space. So we needed to (laughs) build the building, but not take away from their garden. Um, Mm -hmm. And using sort of the green roof as a way to create a natural climate inside of the building. Um, And then we're also working on another project where um, we are taking the uh, also a timber construction, but we're reinventing sort of this timber um, method by also using new glue lamb um, technology to kind of extend the spans that you can have with these with this timber construction. Um, it's also a region where that uh, timber fachwerk construction is very popular in Germany. Um, so always kind of looking at the local. 
mm-hmm. construction technology and trying to figure out how to reinterpret that, um, but still pay respect to the knowledge that the region has. And is that um, is that partly with the timber? Is that partly in a response as well to the sort of predominance of steel and concrete construction and and the, com- uh, the carbon kind of footprint that's kind of inherent with that kind of construction? Um, absolutely, it is. I think that um, it's also, I mean, here in Germany, we have a lot of uh, mostly concrete, then brick, and then steel buildings. Kind of that's sort of the the prior or mm-hmm. the amount of buildings that we have in each, in each material. And um, I think that wood is an incredible carbon sink itself. Um, it's if you do the deforestation sustainably, it's an incredible material, um, especially the way that it's being used now. Um, and it's incredible that structurally it can compete with steel and concrete because it can span in two directions now with CLT mm-hmm. versus before it could only span in one direction. Um, so I think it's incredibly, uh, it has, a, it's a material with incredible potential um, mm-hmm. to actually kind of, allow us to reach these goals <laughs> that the world has um, and and obviously um, reach the goals that, that Germany has that it's setting out for itself, depending on the election that we have this Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Christine, I'm going to ask you now the, the three questions that I ask all of my guests at the end of interviews. And the first one's about your home and, and wanting to find out what if you could pick one thing that really annoys you in your own home, what would it be? Um, I think in my own home, I think what annoys me most is um, the need for curtains, um, but my refusal to to get nice curtain to to get curtains because I hate curtains so I don't use. <laughs> <laughs> but but because I live in Berlin um, and we have sort of a courtyard typology, the next house is pretty close, um, and the tree, especially in the winter, doesn't have enough leaves. So when someone turns on the lights, it's like sort of illuminates my bedroom, um, and I think that. Yes, I, I hate carpets and I hate curtains. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, look, I've lived in the two houses, the one I'm living in now and the last one. So for years I've lived without curtains in both houses. <laughs> but, but, but for me it's because I hate ordering and it's the one bit I hate of house design is choosing a curtain, ordering it, measuring it, getting it fitted. And it, so it just gets put off. So I'm the same with you on that one. Um and then if you could tell me about one house that you visited that's that's been a real inspiration to you, if you had to pick one, um, what would it be and, and why? Um, I think that the one house that I visited is in um, Pennsylvania. It's Louis Kahn's um, house, and I'm forgetting the... Um, the name of it. It was actually on the market for a while and okay. yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of buying it, but I think that um, Louis Kahn in, in all of his houses has this beautiful use of material and especially with wood and concrete um, mm-hmm. and sort of a um, an attention to detail that you usually only see in museums, um, especially with how program is laid out, um, how sort of a um, guest or a dinner party could be choreographed. Um, I think that's all so beautifully done um, and sort of a, a theater-esque um, quality to to the domestic environment, which I think mm-hmm. is really inspiring. Yeah. And then if you could choose any designer to design you uh, a new home, who would you choose? Um, I think because there is, because I'm so set in Germany um, and I think that right now there's so many buildings here that we have a problem of, we have enough buildings, but they all need to be renovated. And so that's really our sustainable um, task, I I think. Mm -hmm. And, Therefore, if I were to renovate an old building, um, and this may seem cheesy because he's so popular right now, but it would be Chipperfield. Um, 
because I just went to the new National Gallery from um, Meese and he just renovated it. And it's incredible how little uh, you can barely see what has been done, but that mm -hmm. I think is sort of the, the beauty of it and sort of the respect um, that he has for, for history is mm -hmm. um, quite inspiring. And great work in Germany as well. That done. <laughs> yes. Um, well, Christine, thank you very much. Uh, very enjoyable interview and uh, congratulations on, on this project. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation and thank you for the questions. It made me think about the project in a different way. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode. If you would like to find out more about Hoff Architects and the project No Man's Land, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com and try out the Instagram page where you can see the work of all of my guests. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, then please leave a review to help other people find the podcast. Christine is not the first German architect that I've had on the podcast. In episode 13, I spoke to Oliver Schutt, co-founder of A01 about his project No Footprint House, an entirely different but equally pioneering approach to reduce carbon footprint with a house design. If you would like to listen to the episode, you can play it via the episodes link on anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode, and thanks again for listening.